time capsule that was placed there in 1939 by the same gentleman who took it out in 1991. Still lived in our community. But what I'm just going to share with you is this last line again. We who are here at this time firmly believe in the third angel's message. And we look forward to this event with joy in our hearts. Now that was 1939. And the question I have for you this evening is whether that there are any Adventists that are still here today. Don't, don't raise your hands. Because I'm not talking about what's out on the sign. I'm talking about people who truly believe that Jesus is coming again. And it affects every aspect of their life. That's who Paul is writing to in this letter. Now, I shared with you last night, and I I believe it, it's just a lot easier if I just do topical sermons. Because I can choose anything I want, preach on it. But when you start going through books of the Bible, you don't get to choose your topics. It's like in golf, and I don't play it, but I understand you have to play the ball where it lies. Is that correct? If you hit it and it's not in a good place and nobody's looking, you can't do that, can you? Huh? No, no, no. you got to play it as it lies. Now, some of you say you can't. No, you know that. And that's what we're going to do with this book. Because yesterday we spent a few moments looking and you noticed something. Five chapters in First Thessalonians. And every chapter ends in the second coming of Jesus. Every chapter. These folks are Adventists. And Paul is dealing with some very real issues that Adventists had in the first century. And I want to suggest that people and buildings and personnel may change. But our needs as human beings have not changed since creation. Do you believe that? That since the fall of man, we have the need for redemption and repentance and confession and the growth in Christ that still exists. That still exists. And it's for that reason, as we come to this second chapter, that we need to think, this this may be a little strange, what Paul begins to talk about. Because you wouldn't think it would have existed early in the church. But it does. And you tell me if that's still here today. And that is that there is conflict in the body of Christ. It was there then. And what I want us to notice... There's criticism. And I want us to notice how Paul handles that. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard Barry Black preach before. You know, the chaplain of the United States Senate. We're so proud of that man and all that he has done. At the beginning of World War II, the chaplain of the United States Senate was a gentleman by the name of Peter Marshall, who you probably all heard of as well. He has a sermon, and I want to do just the introduction. It's called The Risk of Reach. Would you listen to this with me, please? It was an afternoon in early summer. There was a strange quiet on the battlefield. In the bright sunshine, the air was balmy and had a breath of garden in it. And by some grotesque miracle, a bird was singing somewhere near at hand. And on the firing step with his rifle laying in a groove in the parapet, stood a private soldier in field gray. He had a wistful, faraway expression. The lines of war made him look older. He was enjoying the sunshine, the quiet of this strange lull on the firing. The heavy guns had been silent. There was no sound to break the eerie stillness. And suddenly, a butterfly. A butterfly flittered into view and alighted on the ground almost at the end of his rifle. It was a strange visitor to the battleground, so out of place, so out of keeping with the grim setting of rifles and bayonets and barbed wire and parapets and shell holes and twisted bodies. But there it was, a gorgeous creature, the wings like gold leaf splashed with carmen, swaying in the breath of spring. And as the war-weary youngster watched the butterfly, he was no longer a private in field gray. He was a boy once more, fresh and clean, swinging through a field in sunny Saxony, knee-deep in clovers and buttercups and daisies. The strange visitor to the battlefield trenches recalled to him the joys of his boyhood when he collected butterflies. 
It spoke to him of days of peace. It was a symbol of the lovelier things of life. It was the emblem of the eternal, a reminder that there was still beauty and peace in the world, and that somewhere there was color and perfume and flowers and gardens. And he forgot. He forgot the enemy a few hundred yards across no man's land. He forgot the danger and the preservation and the suffering. He forgot everything as he watched that butterfly. And with all that hunger in his heart, and with the resurrection of dreams and visions that he thought was gone, he, he reached out his hand towards that butterfly. His fingers moved slowly and cautiously, lest he frighten away the visitor to the battlefield. But in showing one kind of caution, he forgot another. The butterfly was just beyond his reach, so he stretched forgetting that a watchful eye was looking for a target. He brought himself out slowly with infinite care and patience until now he had just a little distance to go. He could almost touch the wings of that creature. They were so lovely. And then, ping. Sniper's bullet found its mark. The stretching fingers relaxed. The hand dropped flat on the ground. And for a private soldier in field gray. The war was over. An official bulletin was issued that afternoon that said, all was quiet on the Western Front. And for a boy in field gray, it was a quiet that no guns would ever break. And then Peter Marshall makes this statement. There is always a risk. When you reach for the beautiful, when you reach for the lovelier, when you reach for the finer things of life, there's always a risk and you can't escape it. I want to suggest to you that when you make the commitment to live for Christ and surrender your life to Him and serve Him, there is always a risk. Do you believe that? Paul faces that and he deals with it here. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That Paul's being shot at. He's being criticized. There are those that are accusing him of things. That is tearing down what God has done in Thessalonica. I'm glad that doesn't happen in our churches today, does it? But Paul's faced with this criticism. And then in the interesting, in this book, this time capsule that deals with the soon coming of Jesus. They believed that soon the skies would open. Dead in Christ would be rise first. In that environment, there's criticism. There's anger and frustration. And I want us to take just a few moments, and I want us to see how we as Christians living today deal with those sniper shots that come at all of us I don't care if you're a pastor, an elder, a Sabbath school leader. I, I, I don't care. A committed Christian who wants to live for Jesus. There's an enemy that has made you a target. Do you believe that? And tonight, for a few moments, I want you to see how Paul dealt with that. And maybe it can help us as we deal with it as well. Tonight, I want to put something else out on the table. There's a boot there. Can you see it? Yeah. Well-worn hiking boots. You, you see that. You know what they look like. But I want to take something else out of the time capsule. Put it on that table. A family album. A family picture album. And I want to place it there. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul begins this, this chapter with two words. You know. And you know that over the next 11 verses, he uses that word, those two words, five times. You know. There is an openness, a transparency, an integrity in the ministry of Paul that needs to exist in the church today. Do you believe that? He says, you know. You know me. And I want you to see in the midst of this conflict... In this first century church, what is it that Paul says they know? I want you to take a look with me for just a moment. Because Paul says to them, you know how I got here. 
And I'd like for us to take just a moment with our Bibles open and see how Paul got there as well. Open your Bibles. We're going to go real quick. And I'm thankful that we have the book of Acts because it gives us the background to what happened in Thessalonica. Would you open with me? We'll go very quickly in Acts 13. In Acts 13, the book of Acts is divided into two segments. First 15 chapters deals with Peter. The rest of the book of Acts deals with Paul. It's these two men. Some believe that when Luke wrote this book, it was right after the death of Peter and Paul in Rome. And that this maybe was a tribute to them. And in the book of Acts, starting in verse 13, you begin to see Paul now emerging. And in verse 13, you have that passage where it simply says in verse 2, And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I've called them. And on this first missionary journey, probably happening around 4950 A.D., Paul and Barnabas, and they have somebody else with them. Uh, You notice this in verse 5. John Mark is with them. John is with them. He's a helper. And on that first missionary journey, you know they go down to Cyprus. Some incredible things happen there. And then they go up to Turkey, to Asia Minor, really to Phrygia, just right on the border. They land there and immediately John Mark abandons them. We don't know why. Doesn't say. Maybe he was sick. Maybe he was homesick. Uh, We don't know. But he leaves them. And it's simply Paul and Barnabas now that go up to Antioch in Pisidia. And it's there that Paul preaches his first full sermon. You can read it in Acts 13. And after that sermon, Paul goes to Lister and, and Derby. And you remember what happens in Lister? You remember Paul was uh, cast out the demon out of the little girl? And all of a sudden the whole city comes running out. And then they say that Paul is, is Zeus and, 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 and that, uh, 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 that Barnabas is Mercury. They believe the gods have come down among them. And they want to offer sacrifices to them. And they stop them in their tracks. No, you can't do that. And isn't it amazing how the bandwagon effect can change in a moment? In one second, they want to worship him. The next moment, they drag him out of the city and they stone him. Now, what I love about this is that Paul, after a while, gets up and the Bible says he dusts himself off and he goes back into that city. Now, Chuck Swindoll has written a a series of books on the biographies of people in the Bible. And he has one on Paul. He says, the man of courage and grit. You know, if I was going to make a movie on the life of Paul, you know who I'd choose to play him? John Wayne? (laughs) How about this? Danny DeVito. About this tall? In your face? Are you with me? You all know who he is? Yes. Just this almost obnoxious. And here's Paul. Beaten to a pulp. Gets up and goes back into the city. He eventually comes back to Jerusalem. And in Acts 15, they have that council in Jerusalem. And it's in that council that Paul gets two things. He gets a letter that he's going to take to the churches where he's been. And he gets another traveling companion, Silas. And he needs that companion because uh, among Paul and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Barnabas, there is an argument. That comes. We never argue in the church, do we? And, and it's interesting that in the last part of Acts chapter 15, when they're ready to start this new missionary endeavor, notice if you would, beginning in verse 36, well, beginning in verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. But Paul did not think it was wise because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued in the work with them. Can you see him when they're getting ready to go? Barnabas says, I've got everything together, Paul. I have provisions for all three of us. Paul says, what? Yes, all three of us to go on this next journey. Three of us? Yes, Paul. John Mark's going with it. No, he's not. Well, of course he is, Paul. He's not going with it. Now, I think that we're afraid to really read this the way it says. 
Would you notice in uh, verse 39? They had such a what? Now, now, yeah, you all have Christianized that and you just make it. These two men are in each other's face. I'm tempted in church sometime to have two deacons act this out, you know. Just nose to nose, bumping chest. You know how we are? He's going. No, he's not. He's going. I said he's not. Barnabas says, he don't go. I don't go. Paul says, bye. (laughs) And isn't it amazing what God can do? God to multiply by dividing. Have you ever noticed that? For instead of one missionary journey and Paul and Silas head north, Barnabas and John Mark go back to Cyprus. Isn't that amazing what God can do? But all of this is laying the groundwork for what's going to happen in Thessalonica. And you know what Paul and Silas want to do. They want to go back to those churches. The ones they visited on that first journey. Read them that letter that came from the conference in Jerusalem. Let them know that you're saved by Christ and Him alone. That's Paul's message. But what's interesting in chapter 16 of Acts, and we're coming. Chapter 17 is Thessalonica. We're just about there, but watch this. (coughs) Chapter 16, verse 1. And when he came to Derby and then to Lister, where a disciple named who? Isn't that interesting? Timothy was probably there as a young boy the first time Paul came through. Timothy saw him beaten. Timothy saw him come back through that town. And now can you imagine, <clears throat> as Paul and Silas come back through, that Paul extends the ministry to Timothy. And Timothy, knowing full well what's happened to him, Paul extends to this young man. I want to suggest that God always has things going on we don't know about. Do you believe that? There's always things happening. Even when bad things happen to us, little eyes are watching. Little do we know what God is preparing. And God was preparing Timothy's heart. And he begins to follow. Now, this is an interesting part. Because now it's Silas, and it's Timothy, and it's Paul. And would you pick up the story in verse 6 of uh, Acts chapter 16? We're coming to Thessalonica. And Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Now, Now, watch this. And having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the providence of Asia. Now watch, they're going right up through the middle of Turkey. What's today is Turkey? Cappadocia. Then they're going right up through the middle, and Paul decides he wants to preach the gospel in Asia. Scholars believe that that was probably Ephesus. That was to the left. Paul loved these big cities. Paul loved to preach the gospel where the most people were, where the most paganism and heathenism. That's where Paul wanted to preach. You know, sometimes I'm afraid we keep the Bible in the church too much. Do you believe that? That the Bible can hold its own in the streets. Paul wanted to go to Ephesus. He would one day. But guess what the Bible says? Not now. And does not say why. You ever had that happen to you? You ever had the Lord close the door? Look at this. Here he is. Kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the providence of Asia. It's probably going to Ephesus. Now watch. And then they came to the border of my Asia. And they tried to enter into Bithany. Now this is the only place you find this in all of scripture. But the spirit of Jesus. That phrase. I, I don't know exactly what other than this. Kept them. Would not allow them to go there. Isn't that amazing? Now watch Paul. Now, Bithany was going up to what later would become Constantinople and what today is Istanbul. Now, now here's Paul. He, he's, he's going this direction, tries to turn left. The Lord says what? No. Tries to turn right. The Lord says what? No. Let me tell you one direction I know he's not going. You, are you with me? He is not turning back. It is not in his makeup. I remember reading uh, William Manchester's book, The American Caesar, about General Douglas MacArthur. And especially in the Korean War, 
where MacArthur had pushed the Chinese all the way up to the Yellow River. And Truman said, I, I don't want to have a border with the Chinese. I need you to retreat. MacArthur said, and in fact, he told MacArthur, I need to tell your men to retreat. You tell them to retreat. MacArthur says they don't know that word. Truman said to MacArthur, then just tell them to fight in a different direction. All right. <laughs> Paul doesn't know that word. So what does he do? Can't go left. Can't go right. And he does what some of you have done. He walks by faith and not by sight. He just keeps walking this way. This is not in his plan. This is not where he had planned on going. And where does it take him to? Troas. That's not in Paul's game plan. Troas. What in the world is in Troas? But would you watch? I love this. Notice if you would. Verse 8. And as they passed through my Asia and went to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia, standing there begging them, come on over to Macedonia and help us. Watch. And after Paul had seen the vision, what's the next word? What? Immediately, then the next word is, we? You have the word we? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the first time that's used. It's all been third person. Him or they. We. Who's joined them in Troas? The author of this book. Luke was there. God knew what Paul... He didn't know what he needed. God knew that he was going to need another companion. Luke joins him there. And I want you to notice something else. We got ready once to leave for Macedonia. And then the next word. Concluding. That's one of those aha experiences. You ever had one of those? Ah, (laughs) that's why I'm in Troas. Because what was one small little boat ride across the Aegean for Paul was one gigantic leap for Christianity from Asia to Europe. I want to suggest to you that God has plans we don't know about. Are you listening? And they only come about when we're willing to walk by faith and not by sight. In the midst of conflict. And that's how Paul comes to land on the shores of Greece. And it says that he lands there and he goes to Apollonia and he goes to Philippi and he goes to Thessalonica. Do you know what those cities are? They're cities on that highway, the Ignatian Way, and they're 30 miles apart. They're a day's journey. And Paul has landed there, and that's where he is now on this highway that leads him in to Thessalonica. And that's where we are in Acts 17. Paul has arrived in Thessalonica, and you know what he does there. First thing he does, he goes to the synagogue. Let me tell you something about the synagogue that really has... I mean, it just has instilled in my heart how God provides for us in ways that we do not even know. You know that the synagogues probably emerged, we don't know for sure, but maybe probably during the Babylonian captivity, where they wanted to to keep their children educated, elder. They wanted them to, to not forget the faith living in Babylon. And eventually these synagogues not only became a place of education for children, it became a place of, uh, of rulership for the people of God. That they did not live under Babylonian rule. They, they lived under God's rule. And it was in these synagogues. But listen to me. Do you know what every synagogue that began to open everywhere the, the disciples had been scattered, these, these ones uh, uh, that had been scattered during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, do you know what every synagogue had? A Torah. Torah. That's what they wanted. The word of God in every synagogue. And for 400 years, the Torahs had been planted all over the then known world. And when Paul comes to Thessalonica, you see, back in Texas at my house, I have pecan trees out in my front yard. Now, I don't get to eat many of them because these squirrels are faster than I am. 
And before these things ever hit the ground, these squirrels grab them. Now, I don't mind. I've got plenty to eat. They're welcome to them. But what I do mind is they take them and they go and bury them. And then sometimes forget where they put them. And I got these little trees coming up, right, that I don't want out in the middle of my yard. God took those synagogues and he planted his Torah 400 years before Paul, knowing that one day Roman roads would make it possible to move between these countries. The Pax Roma, Roman peace, would give you the freedom to move among these countries. And that's what Paul used when he came to Thessalonica. This Roman peace on Roman roads. And he comes to Thessalonica and takes their scripture, the Torah. And Acts 17 says, shows them Christ from the Old Testament. You believe he's there? Oh, yes, he's there. It's about him. And this is the part now we come to for what we're going to look at for a few moments this evening. Everywhere Paul went, there was revival and revolution. You ever notice that? There's a principle in the book of Acts that you see all through the book of Acts. That there is a need and God gives a gift to meet that need. And that produces an opportunity for witness. And then that witness produces persecution, which produces greater witness. Are you with me? You remember Peter and John walking by the gate and the fellow says, you know, begging. And they say, what, silver and gold have I none? But such as I have, I, there's a need. God brought these men and gave them a gift, the gift of healing. And immediately, remember what that fellow did? Jumped up and began running, remember, into the temple, leaping and shouting and praising God. Witness. Drew a crowd. And the next thing you know, Peter and John are arrested, right? And do you know where this little crowd took Peter and John? To the Sanhedrin. Greater witness. There's a need. God gives a gift. That gift produces an opportunity for witness, which produces persecution, which produces greater witness. In the book of Acts... You remember Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 8, where it talks about uh, that, uh, uh, that this gospel would go to, to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. You remember that in, in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? That's an outline of the book of Acts. I can show you the verses where Paul and his ministry moved beyond these regions. Do you know what propelled it every time? Persecution. Persecution is what took them from one place to the next place every time. There is a sequence in the book of Acts. There's a need. God gives a gift. The gift produces an opportunity for witness. Witness produces persecution. Persecution produces greater witness. You ever heard people say, why don't we see the miracles we saw in the first century church? You ever heard that? i tell you why we don't see them. We don't need them. At least we don't think we do, right? I got everything I need. <laughs> got it taken care of. I mean, what if we really, really did realize our need and begin asking God to give those gifts? You know, they're in that upper room praying, Lord, how are we supposed to take this gospel to the world? And little did they know right outside the door, the whole world was there, Right? And God gave a gift, remember? Gift of tongues. By the way, gift of tongues doesn't knock you down and make you roll around. The gift of tongues stands you up and sends you out in the streets, right? Yes. You see it in Acts 2. They stood up, went out and preached. I'd say it's the gift of ears. You know, here they are. God gives a gift. What would really happen if we began to pray for God to give us gifts to meet needs? I'd tell you exactly what would happen. Persecution. It would. And you know what persecution forces us to do sometimes? To cower. To run away. And little do we know that persecution produces greater witness. That text that says that, the, that they were to stay in Jerusalem 
Look in Acts with me for just a second, verse six, chapter 6. I want you to see why I think God had them stay in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 6, notice if you would in verse 7. Remember now, they get arrested. They get taken before the Sanhedrin. Would you notice Acts chapter 6 and verse 7? So the word of God did what? Spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem did what? It multiplied rapidly. And a large number of who? Priests became obedient to the faith. Do you see that? You see, <laughs> Paul and, 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 and Peter and others and John, people thought they were on trial. <laughs> They're not the ones on trial. God's trying to reach the hearts of those priests. He never stopped loving them. Do you see that? I think that's why they had them stay there. Because he wanted to reach these ones who had rejected him. There's a sequence here. God has a plan even when we don't see it. And I believe Paul knew that. And I think that's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we have a family album. There's a problem that has emerged Paul, as you know, in Thessalonica, was run out of town. The Jews revolted against him. Now, in Thessalonica, we said last night, that was a city of a quarter of a million people that was on a, uh, a harbor. It had an interstate, the Nation Way, running right through it. It was the San Francisco of the day. If it existed in the Roman Empire, it was there. I told you last night, one scholar said it was a multicultural, pluralistic society. Does that sound familiar? Those were the cities where Paul believed that the word of God could take root. And it's there, in that place, that God used Paul to plant this church. Now, the Bible says he only preached there three weeks. Some believe he was probably there longer. But in three weeks, now there's a revolt. And Paul is whisked out of that city. I often wonder why he left. He was so bold. What had happened in Philippi? That's what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know what happened in Philippi. What happened in Philippi? Paul and Silas got what? They got beat, didn't they? Yes, arrested, beaten, thrown in jail. Now, it's interesting, and you don't need to turn there. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that five times he received 40 lashes minus one. Now, the Jews didn't give 40 lashes because they were compassionate. They felt 40 lashes maybe would kill you. They only did 39, right? <laughs> and you read about these uh, whips that they would use, these long leather straps that at the end of them, they would tie pieces of iron and they would have these, these balls, heavy lead balls. And when they hit someone, not only did you get strapped like a belt, but those balls would produce bruises. Those, those pieces, sharp pieces would rip the skin. Can you imagine 39 lashes with that? And Paul says, five times I had that. That's almost 200 lashes. Can you imagine what this man must have looked like? That little frame, there's not much room on it. To be whipped. Maybe some of it caught him across the face. And when he came to Thessalonica, he came to town like this. Right? He had just been whipped again in Philippi. He came walking gingerly. Now, I grew up in West Virginia. I told you that. And when I was a little kid, I could have got my grandmother in jail. Because outside our house, her house, and I grew up, my grandparents raised me. There was a willow tree. We love that willow tree except for one thing. They made switches. You ever heard of that, you know? Yeah, my grandmother used to take apples. We had an apple orchard and she'd string them up to let them dry. Oh man, we loved to get into those strings of apples. Oh, they were good. But every time we get into them, she'd cut her a stick off that, a little switch off that willow tree. I used to go to school with little whelps. I could turn her into the police today. You know that? Yeah. Some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about, you know. You've never been switched before, have you, by a little willow switch? <laughs> Bringing back memories now, sister. Yeah, it was an apricot tree. <laughs> it was an apricot. <laughs> Look at Paul. 
He came to town gingerly. And I think that's why they moved him out very quickly. They knew how feeble he was. And you know he goes down to Berea. And you know that. These Jews chase him down there. And then he moves from Berea down to Athens. And it's in Athens that he sends Silas and Timothy back to Thessalonica. He's concerned. He had to leave in a moment's notice. He's concerned. And eventually he goes to Corinth. And that's where they all meet again. And they tell him about Acts chapter 2. This had to break Paul's heart. Would you look in Acts chapter 2 what's being said? When finally Silas and Timothy catch up with him. Listen to what some folks are saying. Paul's writing a letter back and he says, You know, brothers, that your visit, that our visit to you was not a what? What do you have? Our visit was not a what? Failure? What does your translation say? Failure. Failure. Yeah, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1. That our visit was not a what? Pardon? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's First Thessalonians. That's why my wife sits on the front row. She's giving me hand signs all the time. And so I appreciate that. You know, last summer I, I wasn't doing this. Last summer, I was in the chemo cave. Any of you ever been there? My second time to go through that. I have cancer. Got a port in my chest. You know, they still do all that. I'd much rather be up here where I am right now than where I was last summer. And it's by God's grace I'm here and my wife. (laughs) I lean literally on her quite a bit. And I'm thankful for that. God, God has a, he has things, even when things happen to us, we don't plan for so she, she's, she's a big help to me up here. You see her giving all kinds of... She's like a third baseman coach in baseball. She's got, giving me signs here. <laughs> it should be. <clears throat> First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Notice. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a... You see, reading these letters is a lot like the game Jeopardy on television, if you ever watched that. You see, in Jeopardy, they give you the answer, and you're supposed to guess what? The question. And that's exactly what we're doing here. We're getting an answer. And you see the question. Evidently, there's those who say, you know, Paul came here and he did not accomplish a thing. That that little word failure in the Septuagint is the same word in Genesis 1-1 where it says the earth was without form and void. Nothing there. Same word. So no sooner does Paul get out of town. Of course, you expect the Jews to rise up against him. But those new converts. You ever notice that after a crusade? You ever had new folks come into your church? And people come out of the woodwork with websites? You ever seen that happen to you? You know, People have an opinion about who these Adventists are. Here's Paul. Here's Paul. He had to leave suddenly. He's gone from their sight. And the rumors are started, he really didn't accomplish anything when he was here anyway. I want to tell you something. Those of you know that, that's, that work in, in leadership jobs, that there's nothing that cuts your heart to the core that when someone sort of challenges your motives. You know? In fact, that's what they do. Notice if you would. Come down to uh, verse 5. For the appeal we make does not spring from where? From error. Evidently, some people said, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. He's wrong. That can happen. Somebody can make an error. Teach something wrong and didn't know it. But it doesn't stop there. For the appeal we made does not spring from error or from what? Impure motives. Now, this is an interesting word. This little word always has the hint of immorality attached to it. That someone's being taken advantage of. Do you hear the things that are being said by Paul? About Paul? And not only that, look at the last part. Nor are we trying to do what? To trick you, to deceive you. Maury Vinden used to pastor in our community. He was there for several years. I remember a sermon he did, I heard it on tape, where this little word trick... He talks about this Greek word for trick, doulos. 
dolos, a little word for trick. He said that the best definition of, and I like it, is fish bait. Fish bait. What's fish bait? Oh, it, it squirms and it looks good to the fish. and deli- But what's inside? There's a hook. You trick them. And you can see no sooner has Paul left town. He was wrong. What he taught was not true. Not only that, uh, there's some shady things that we're not sure of. That we're, and I want to tell you, even more than that, he deceived you. He did that on purpose. Pastor, nothing will cut your heart more than someone to impugn your motives. Paul says, you know how I came into that town? I came in limping. But I was not afraid to preach the gospel to you. Moving slowly. He says to him, you know. And I want you to notice, family album. First word, brothers. You see where Paul goes? Brothers, you know how we came to town and how we treated you. Whenever Paul is being accused, what does he turn to? The family of God. That's why we should always live right with each other. Amen? Someone once said, you know, you... If you always tell the truth, you don't have to have a good memory, right? <laughs> you don't have to cover your tribe. Just and, and that's what Paul's saying. You know, brothers, you know what he's saying? Brothers don't treat brothers this way. I remember those early disciples. In the book of Desire of Ages, when it talks about Jesus, he called twelve. The book Desire of Ages tells me that really there was eleven and they brought the twelfth one, remember? They said, Lord, you need him. Look at him. Handsome, educated, knows folks. You need him. They made him treasurer, right? Gave him an exalted position right away. At the end of the book, Desire of Ages, Judas has his own chapter. Do you know that? And in the upper room, I never could understand this. In the upper room, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And he says, the one I'm going to take bread and dip in the sop and give it to him. And he does that. Takes bread, dips it in sop, hands it to Judas, and the rest of the disciples go, Judas, Judas, how could you have done that, right? He dipped it in the sop, handed it to Judas, and the rest of the disciples never saw. He even leaves the room. What do they think? He's going to help the poor. That's how much that, no wonder, when you find the lists of disciples, Judas is always called the one who betrayed the Lord. I think Peter denied him, but betrayed. You see, to have betrayal, you have to have love. And those disciples loved that man and trusted him. You know, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. I read in um, National Geographic once an article about salt. And it said something in that article that I, I didn't believe. I had to go check it out for myself. The article said, do you know how you can tell who Judas is? In Leonardo da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper. Do you know how you can tell who Judas is? And I was thinking, well, he's got the money bag. You know what this article said? In front of Judas is an overturned salt dispenser. Now, they didn't shake salt. They dipped things in salt. Next time, you go home on the Internet, if you can get it up here. If you go on, (laughs) you look up that painting, and in front of Judas, an overturned salt dispenser. So much potential wasted. Brothers don't treat brothers that way. And when Paul's being criticized, what is he saying? Brothers, we don't do this to each other. You know how I was, how I acted when I was among you. I want to suggest that each one of us need to have a reputation in our church that we live for the Lord. Amen. And when things come that we hadn't planned on, maybe even people say things about us that are not correct. Sometimes we need to just shut up and let the reputation God has given you Speak for itself. Do you believe that? That's what Paul did. Brothers, you know. But that's not the only picture he goes to in the family album. 
Because it's not just his motives. Would you notice this next picture? Look if you would. We're going quickly here. He comes down again in verse 6. For we were not looking for praise from men, nor from you or from anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were what? Gentle as a what? As a nursing mother. Do you hear what picture Paul points to in the family album? You see, you can impugn my motives. But I want you to know something. My mission among you. He said, I was like a nursing. There's no picture in that culture that that brought about such tender emotional feelings. But not just that. Do you notice what he says? Look in verse, uh, continue verse 8. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel. You mean there's more than the gospel? But ourselves. Because you become so dear to us. Surely remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work day and night. That's the work of a mother, isn't it? Ladies, isn't it? Day and night. Paul turns to that family album. He said, brothers, don't treat brothers that way. And then he says, we worked among you like a nursing mother. Caring for their children. Now, I wish I could tell you, ladies, that I know exactly what that means. I have two daughters, grown and married. I still don't know everything what that means. The Lord gave me a little glimpse one time. Now, I'm the oldest of five. So I changed my fair share of diapers. But uh, when I was overseas in the 70s as a student missionary, I had gone over, taught English there, and, you know, you're adventurous. I didn't want to just get on a plane and come back. I want to do something different. So I looked in getting on a freighter and maybe going through the Philippines for a month or so. And then I found out you could get on the Siberian Railroad in the northern part of Japan. And I, and, uh, uh, what's the name? Wakita? Wakita. No. Anyway, that city up there. <laughs> and you can take that across Alaska. Uh, across, not Alaska. Yeah, Russia. Thank you for your help. But I'd been working while I was there with an orphanage. We'd go out on Sabbath afternoon and get to know the kids and do vacation Bible school and help sometimes uh, washing some little wounds maybe they had. And I was getting ready to leave Korea. I wanted to go to school in Newbold College in England. I didn't have any money. I didn't know how I could do that. I got a phone call from this orphanage, and they said, Listen, we hear you're wanting to go to Europe. We've got uh, some children that are being adopted. Would you be willing to take them for us, and we'll pay you away? And not only that, the, the English language school said they would give me the cash. I can go back anyway. There's my tuition. When God takes care of you, he takes care of you, doesn't he? Paid my way, had my tuition. I thought, piece of cake. I've changed diapers. I can handle this. I showed up at Kimpo International Airport, ready now to, uh, to go to Oslo, Norway, where I was taking these, these babies. And I'm in this room, and a lady dressed in a white smock type came in and she had a little baby under this arm and a little baby under this arm. And she came walking into the room. Behind her was another lady, white coat, little baby under this arm, little baby under this arm, came walking. <laughs> behind her was another lady, little baby under, behind her was another lady, little, behind her was another lady. Ten. Ten little girls, all under six months. Now, I was traveling with a, a young lady uh, who was in the military, an African-American lady. They had asked her. So it was the two of us with ten little baby girls. We had them for the next 36 hours. And I could tell you stories tonight of the things that we went through traveling all the way there. I was ready to join a monastery. <laughs> I tell you, I heard babies crying for a month after that. I got a glimpse, ladies, just a glimpse of that 24-7 thing, you know. <clears throat> Paul says, we were like nursing mothers among you. Family album. Do you see it? And then there's one more, and we need to finish here before too long. He says this, look if you would in verse 10. You are my witnesses, and it is God of, it is, you are our witness, and so is God of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. 
For you know that we dealt with each of you as a what? Father. Do you see that picture? Brothers, mother, father. This book of First Thessalonians is different than any book Paul's ever written. This is not Romans. That's a treatise of salvation. You see Paul's heart all over these pages. Because he knows that these Adventists, these people living before Jesus comes, are going to face tough times. And he knows they need to be a family. That they need to trust each other. Got your back, right, type thing. That's what God needs in this world today. I know when we're talking about the coming of Jesus, you want to talk about signs. I believe in the signs. But in 1 Thessalonians, what he's doing is he's opened the door and we're taking a peek on the inside, not just the outside, of Adventists. And what they look like and how they live and how they treat each other, even in adversity. You see, the mom was the nurturer. The father is the educator. And I love what he says. We uh, Notice those words that he used. I love this. When he talks about how the father deals with us and his children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live a life worthy of the kingdom of God, worthy of God who calls us into his kingdom and glory. Do you see that, Father? Paul turns to the family album. And when things get tough, he says, this is how we treat each other. Now, why am I sharing this with you tonight? I'm sharing this because I think that there may be folks here. There may be folks back in your church that you know who have taken a reach in leadership, stuck their heads up, and somebody found a target. They've been hurt. They've been shot. I want us to realize something. That God has a plan for us in the body of Christ. That we need each other. Remember last night we talked about the idea that the word saint does not exist in the singular in the Bible referring to a person. There's no St. Peter or St. Paul. But they're saints. These letters. Remember... Every church was written, the church of, Thessalon- church of Thessalonica, church in Galatia, church in Ephesus, and that same church is in Christ. Every church has two addresses. Spiritual address, I'm in Christ. Source of strength and power and compassion. Physical address, Thessalonica, Galatia, Colossia, you name it. Every church has those two addresses. That's why the boots, every individual needs to be walking that path between the mountain and the multitude. And churches get out of balance and people get out of balance when we don't daily walk that path. I want to live on the mountain. Oh, I love being up here. It's beautiful, but I got to go back to 106 degree weather, right? <laughs> I hope sometime to come back. <laughs> but I, I've got to know where my mountain is at my house, right? Where every day I can set apart and come apart and hear God's voice. But I can't live there. I got to get up out of that easy chair, away from that kitchen table. And go where people are. That, those boots, that well-worn path. But this family album, church family, we need each other. Paul calls us saints. And that only happens. It's not something that's awarded to someone after they die. Sainthood. Saints are what we become in the body of Christ. We need each other. The devil would love to have us all become Lone Rangers. But we need each other. There's a quotation uh, in the book Life Sketches by Ellen White that you're very familiar with. And it says this, as I see, this is on page 196, as I see what the Lord has wrought, I'm filled with astonishment and with confidence in Christ as leader. We have nothing to fear for the future except we shall forget the way he has what? Led us in his teachings in our past history. You know, we we, we read that sometimes and we pat ourselves on the back. We have nothing to fear for the future. We just look back and see what we've done in the past. you know the title of this chapter? Burden Bearers. Burden Bearers. You know how it begins? October 25, 1869. 
While in New York, I was shown that ministers among us fail to bear the responsibility that God has called them to do. You know what she says in this chapter? Her husband went to an early grave because people wouldn't bear responsibility. When she looks at where God has led us, it's not patting us on the back. It's saying that God has got us here in spite of ourselves. Are you listening? It's in spite of ourselves that God has... That's where her confidence is. That the God who has got us this far, He will take us home. Amen? He will. And in the coming of Jesus, I've got to know that. That wherever God has placed you, and where He's placed me, and I'm naive enough to believe that if next week He needs me in the Amazon, I believe He can get me there. Do you believe that? But I want to tell you something. If he still has me right where I live, it may mean that that's where he needs me to be, is right where I live. And every nation, kindred, tongue, and people may be the people in my cul-de-sac or in the apartment buildings in which I live. You don't have to cross vast amount of water and land. Jesus has called us to live for him. I think I read somewhere that every person comes into the kingdom of God as a missionary. You ever read that? He's called us to live where we live for Him. But please, please, don't miss this. The devil is looking for a target. You leave this encampment and you go home with all this enthusiasm and you're ready to stand up and and proclaim what Jesus has done, you better duck. (laughs) Right? But I want you to know something. My God has put things already in motion to provide all that's needed to get this church into his kingdom. And where we live, he needs us to live for him and to be faithful. A couple things and I'm done here. Um, Ellen White had written her counsel about education. And she had read it to the group in Battle Creek. You can read it, too, in the testimonies. Uh, uh, It's Testimonies, Volume 2, I think. I was trying to think of the page numbers where the Council on Education, it's about 50 pages there. You'll see uh, Fundamentals of Education. It's there. Where it's her counsel on the type of education we should have. What's interesting, Ellen and James White have to go to California. They come out here to help start Pacific Press. And it's while they're out here that this search committee begins looking for property. Three pieces of property they look for. 160 acres outside of Battle Creek. The Foster Farm. Too expensive. Can't do that. Then there's the old fairgrounds. About 50 acres just right outside of Battle Creek. Again, can't do it. So what do they do? They buy 12 acres in downtown Battle Creek. And they promptly sell off five acres. And they build on seven. And for the next 26 years, they wrestle with that piece of land. And it never does do what they want it to do. Um, Arthur Spaulding, one of our first church historians. And he wrote in the book, Captain of the Host. That when Ellen White heard their decision, he simply said, she wept. She wept. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, this as well as in Life Sketches. Life Sketches, um, and this is, uh, pay, this is in chapter uh, 37, called Public Labors in 1877. James and L. Whiter in, Ca- in California, and a letter comes. Just two to three years after this school is sort of getting under, under a letter comes. And a telegram had been sent to my husband requesting his presence at Battle Creek to give attention to important business relative to the cause. It's not working. Please come back and help us. And so they do. They pack up and head back to Battle Creek. Now what I find interesting is when Ellen White came to town, I don't know, maybe it's my unconverted heart, I'd have been tempted to come back in saying, I told you so, right? Didn't I tell you how to do this and you didn't listen? Would you listen to what she did? James went to the review and dealt with some of the problems there. Listen to what she did. At the close of the school year, Battle Creek was at hand. And I had felt very anxious for the students. 
Many of them were unconverted and backslidden from God. I spent a week laboring for them, holding meetings every evening and on Sabbath. And on the first day, my heart was troubled to see the house of worship filled with students from our schools. And I tried to impress upon them that a life of purity and prayer would not be a hindrance to them in obtaining a thorough knowledge of the sciences, but it would remove any hindrances to their progress in knowledge. By being connected with the Savior, they are brought into the school of Christ. And if they are diligent in this school, vice and immorality will be expelled from the midst of them. Listen, these begin crowding in. The crowds got bigger. And you listen to what she says. At the close of the week, many of them came forward for baptism. You hear this? Here's a person... No sooner do they, she leaves Battle Creek and they completely ignore what she said. Didn't follow the counsel. And things just began falling apart. I wish to God that I had this kind of spirit in my heart, don't you? That maybe when you give your best counsel, you say what you need, and it's ignored, that there's not bitterness and, you know, and, and anger. But I have this spirit that I want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. That's why Paul points to this family album. I do what I do, Paul says. Brothers, like a nursing mother, like a teaching father. And this last thing I'll leave you with. Look, if you would, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 17. But brothers, when we were torn from you for a short time, you already know the Greek word, orphanizo. Orphan. You hear that word? That's what Paul says. We were orphaned from you, torn from you. He said, I want you to know this. When my plan didn't work out the way I wanted it to, God's plan is still in place, even though it hurt my heart. And I love what he says next. Look, torn from you for a short time. In person, but not out of thought. You see, I was torn from your face, but you're never out of my heart. See, that's what families do, right? You mean to tell me there's not some of you sitting here tonight thinking about other people that are not here? That you wish were at this encampment? Your family, husbands, children, you wish were here. It tears your heart out. It did Paul. And it's interesting. Paul didn't say everything was going to be all right. He doesn't give false hope. He just trusts that God's plan will be carried out. And that those that are faithful to him and will become part of the solution, not part of the problem, God will multiply their efforts for the kingdom's sake. There was a gentleman in World War II. I'll finish. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you probably heard of him. He led a resistance to, uh, to assassinate, it's believed, Adolf Hitler. Got put in jail. Was in jail for quite a while. One of the last things that Hitler did three weeks before he knew he was going to die is he hung Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He did not want him to survive the war. If you want to read an interesting book, it's called The Prison Letters. And it's the letters that went between Bonhoeffer and his family while he was in jail. One particular time, his sister Susan, who came a long distance on a cold train because she thought she would get to see her brother. And they told him she was coming. They let her come. And when she arrived at the prison and was outside they determined he couldn't see her. Many days on a cold train. Didn't have the money to make the trip, but was told she could see. It was just part of trying to get inside his head. But in the prison letters, she wrote Dietrich Bonhoeffer a letter and she said, Oh fools. Oh fools to think that concrete and barbed wire could separate me from you. Oh, fools. Do you hear it? Separated by face, but not by heart. I want to ask you, 
Are there some folks back home that you need to let know? That yes, maybe there's some things that have happened in the body of Christ and maybe some things have been said, maybe even some... But you've never left our hearts. Oh, fools, to think that anything on this earth could separate us as the body of Christ. Amen? Do you believe that? That's who Adventists are. They believe that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things above, nor things below, nor any other thing is able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Now, careful. On that list are things that will hurt you and disappoint you and discourage you. But church cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? It was good news in the first century. It's good news in the 21st century. Amen. Any Adventist here tonight? Amen. You believe Jesus is coming soon. It affects your life and how you look at those you love in the church and out. Tonight we're finished. But here's what I'm going to do. The same thing we did last night for just a few moments. I'm going to have you stand in just a moment. We're going to have prayer. And most of you may need to move on to what you need to do this evening. But there may be some folks here tonight that want to pray. And I'm going to ask the pastors that are here, come and join me in the front. And we just got together last night in small groups and, and we prayed for family members and friends. And I really believe that when we pray, something happens. That God moves in a way, may not be dramatic right now, but something begins to happen. I think that needs to happen at camp meeting, don't you? That something begins to happen here. So would you stand with me? Let me pray and dismiss us. And then if there's some here tonight... They would just like to come up and and let's pray about some of those things that are on your heart. Maybe there's been some division in your church. And God's placing it on your heart to do something about that. To let people know. Your family. There's nothing on this earth that's going to separate us. Jesus is coming soon. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this book tonight. Thank you, Lord, that we have seen. That you have a plan. And even in the midst of conflict and pain, when we are criticized and what we do is challenged, please give us that loving spirit that loves you more than hates others. Please guide and direct. I thank you for the body of Christ that's gathered here tonight. I don't believe in luck and chance. I believe that every person that was here this evening needed to be here. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit do what it does best in our hearts. And we'll give you the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, and we'll see you tomorrow night. Tomorrow night makes me a little nervous. We're going into chapter 4. Calvin says is the most definitive view of Christian sexuality anywhere in Scripture. He needs to talk about it. We need to talk about it. We'll see you tomorrow night. Come up and let's pray. That little... That tape stuck.